Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Philip F. Nelson, and he wrote a book back that was published back in 2018. The title of the book is Who Really Killed Martin Luther King Jr.? The Case Against Lyndon B. Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. And this is not his first book. He's also written LBJ, The Mastermind of the JFK Assassination, 2013. LBJ, From Mastermind to Colossus, 2014. Also, Remember the Liberty, also almost sunk by treason on the high seas, published 2017. And Philip F. Nelson's website is www.lbjthemasterofdeceit.com. So it's lbjthemasterofdeceit, all one word.com. And you can see his books and material there. But this book I read through, tons of information, very well read, and really goes in detail about the background of Lyndon Baines Johnson and J. Edgar Coover prior to the assassination of MLK. And uh, Philip F. Nelson can talk more about that. So Philip F. Nelson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, uh, right. William. I appreciate the awesome. invitation. Great. Well, I'm, I'm delighted that you agreed. Can you talk about your background? I mean, you've written other books kind of around JFK, uh, LBJ. Can you talk about your background and what led you to write Who Really Killed Martin Luther King Jr.? Yes, I'd be glad to, uh, if I can. I have to summarize basically about 60 years in this, uh, in order to do that, but that's, that's uh, I'll, I'll do it. Take your time. Take your time. Form. Cool. Um, yes, I uh, basically grew up in Indiana, went to college in Wisconsin, and uh, graduated in, in 1969, Bachelor of uh, in Economics and uh, Business Administration. And upon graduating, I had uh, decided to submit my application to the Peace Corps to see if that might be an alternative to, you know, the other option of uh, going to Vietnam. So they accepted me. I, I, uh, I went through the training. I spent time in Brazil. And uh, that's kind of a long story. The, the program was basically cut short, however. I was there for roughly a year, a little more or less, whatever it was. Uh, however, I came back in 1970, just in time to, uh, to have my, my number drawn, my lottery number with the draft board. And uh, for, I, I lucked out and got a very high number. And therefore, yes, I was one of those uh, people with the deferments. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, though, I, I didn't think there was much of an option be, because, you know, I, I had my own life plan, you know, worked out. And it didn't involve going to Vietnam, and it didn't. I, I, although I did actually plan to to uh, consider joining the Air Force, and I, I was I, I decided not to do that after all. I, I like the Peace Corps experience, and and I have no regrets from any of that. I uh, I, I began. Th um, my, my doubts in 1961, my doubts about Lyndon Johnson go back to 1961. And I was still in high school. I think it was a sophomore. Anyway, I, I on a Monday morning in the middle of February, there was an, an announcement on the school PA system that there was an airplane crash and down on the LBJ ranch in Texas and two pilots were killed but uh, they, they did say that, thankfully, the vice president was, was uh, safe 
He was not on board. And, and so the, the problem, um, the immediate problem was they referenced the fact that that happened like four days before. And mm -hmm. now they're, they're just announcing it now. It's like the news was delayed for four, four days. And I, I thought there was something a little strange about that. And sure enough, over the next uh, several months and couple of years, the story dribbled out one piece at a time, just just little pieces and increments. And then at the end, in, in 1964, a, a man uh, named J. Evitz Halick uh, uh, wrote a book, A Texan Looks at Lyndon. This is the middle of the 1964 campaign that uh, for, for the presidency. And he, there was a very um, critical look at Lyndon Johnson and his past. And there were inferences made about a series of murders that happened down there and all, and all kinds of other things that had happened in that book. I'm not going to summarize the book, but it just suffice it to say it was a very um, detailed and troubling look at the, this person who was uh, running for president on the Democratic slate. Uh, now, he had assumed the presidency, of course, just just months before in, in December of 1963, or, or excuse me, November 22nd of 1963. Right. So it was right there and, during that presidential election, right? Right. Yeah. So it was uh, something that it was weird because that book, at least in Texas and, and throughout the Southwest, I think, it, it sold a lot of copies, millions of copies. Can you restate, sorry to interrupt, can you restate the title of that book again, please? Yes, it's called A Texan Looks at Lyndon. Texan Looks at And the author was J. Evitz uh, Haley. Now, um, it, it was not until then. My point was that this happened in 1961, that airplane accident. You, you didn't get the full story until that book came out. But there were newspaper articles here and there, but... Who was looking at all of those? They were. It was mostly a Texan, a Texas thing, and and I I wasn't aware of all of these articles that were appearing down there and and the investigations and so forth. And then until this book came out in 1964, and so I, I had a lot of doubts uh, then about you know the integrity of this fellow, and that uh, that sort of <laughs> sprang me into this whole thing my my uh, the, the, that I had a great interest in for all of those years and beyond especially during the additional assassinations that were that would start up after JFK of course we had Malcolm X and and then a couple of years later we had uh, Fred Hampton and uh, it, it just it went on and then suddenly uh, Martin Luther King was murdered in 1968, in April, two months after that, of course, Robert Kennedy was. And I just had a feeling that there was something missing in the Warren report, the Warren Commission report that looked at uh, at the JFK assassination and, and attributed it to, you know, a, uh, a lone nut, a malcontent. Right. And then along comes the uh, other assassinations, and it's the same thing. It was a lone nut, a malcontent that allegedly killed Martin Luther King, and again, in Robert Kennedy's case, it seemed like it was a broken record and, or something very terribly off place, out of place because of the books that had come out on the JFK assassination, the, the earliest books uh, questioning 
you know, what really happened. And, you know, the author's there. I'm not going to go through the list, but right. Mark Lane, some of these other guys are very well known. Mm. Kind of, yeah, right. JFK assassination researchers. Yeah. Also. And there were some other lesser, lesser known uh, researchers, uh, uh, Sylvia Mayer and, and so forth. And anyway, the point is there were a number of books, a lot of questions being raised. And, and then we have these other assassinations. And so by the end of it, you know, I, but I had pretty much had my fill of Johnson. But then when I got back from the Peace Corps, I decided I really need to get into a career kind of thing. And that's what I did. So for the next uh, 30 years or so, you know, I had to put everything on the shelf of all my interests. I did continue reading books as they came around. But it wasn't until my retirement in, in uh, 2003 at age 58 that I decided I'm, I'm going to uh, – try to put some notes together from all those books I had already read and I'm going to read some more books and see what, what I can figure out about all this, because the book that I felt should have been written. And uh, when I did all this and starting in about 2003 or so, I, I just uh, felt that the, the book had not been written. Somebody's got to write this book. Right. So, so by 2007, I decided it had to be me because I didn't see anybody else on the horizon. So that's that's kind of what I did. Now, I, I should mention right here that, that my attention was very much aroused in November of 2003 when uh, three additional episodes of the series, the, the History Channel series, The Men Who Killed Kennedy, were, were introduced in 2003. And uh, of those three, it was episodes uh, seven, eight, and nine. And it was the number nine one, the, the final one uh, called The Guilty Man. Uh, really caught my attention because there, a lot of people started talking about very strange uh, things about Lyndon Johnson, that many of which I had never, never heard or, or uh, realized. And that's a very well-made document documentary series, in my opinion. Would you agree with that? Oh yes, absolutely. I, th I think, and I've always said it was, I, I believe, it was the best video, ever, of, of what I believe the assassination was all about, and 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 I've been, um, you know, attacked for uh, for a long time because of the use of the word mastermind. LBJ is the mastermind. A lot of people don't. Uh, agree with that, and I understand why. And it has nothing to do with the dictionary definition of the term. It's it's their interpretation of what that term means, and uh, invariably people attack me for 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 thinking that LBJ was smart enough to know every detail of this rather extensive conspiracy. That was never that was never the case. In fact, if you look at the dictionary definition. A person who conceives of an idea and is able to muster support among people that he can count on to carry it out uh, and coordinate those and, and, and bring them together and, and then become the driving force and supply the momentum for, for this effort, this plot, whatever you want to call it, to go forward. Well, he can be called a, a mastermind because it was his original idea and concept and, and, and he took the, the original steps to make it happen. Now, I, I go back 
uh, a lot of people then weigh in with the idea, well, yeah, but he, he, he couldn't have really designed all this, which is what they interpret the, the term to mean. Uh, and, but that's just an incorrect interpretation. And, and I, as I, again, just look it up in the dictionary. That's what it says as I portrayed it. Right. And he, I mean, he's the chief beneficiary of the death of, uh, you know, JFK who becomes president is LBJ. Right. So right. there's a running thing. So it, yeah, I'm, it, it does seem simplistic. And if you look at it in, if it, in an out of context manner, and that's what they generally do. Uh, but I, I believe I still do that, that, uh, things that he did back in 1958. Okay. I'm talking about now five years before the assassination, even before he was on the ticket, right. he, he arranged in Texas to, to change to, for the Texas legislature to change the, the law in Texas so that he could run in 1960 on both the national ticket and the state ticket because his term was lim was uh, coming up for re-election in 1960 as the senator and the uh, majority leader. And so he, he uh, th that action basically was what triggered his, his next steps. And, right. and then, so in 19, uh, when 1960 rolled around, that, that was already set and, and he was on both the state ticket and the national ticket. And but the way he got on the national ticket ba basically was to want to go on as the vice president because he knew that he, he could not win as it, at the top of the ticket as the president, right. a, you know, a nom nomination the, right. with the presidential nomination. He wanted to be on the vice presidential nomination because for a number of reasons, but but the fact that he knew that he would not have national support being from Texas, the South all that, uh, that, um, that was his way onto the ticket. But then when he was there, then he, he felt that, or I, I believe he planned as early as 1958 to, to, uh, to do something to put himself into the presidency before that term expired. And that was to basically assassinate JFK to get there. Right. But he was, there were suspicious deaths in Texas on his rise up and he was always saying he wanted to be president. So that was his ultimate goal. Correct. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, he, he even started saying that when he was a child, when, when he was 12 years old, he, uh, playing King of the mountain with other kids, he declared to them then. Uh, so this was in 1920 then that he would be president someday. And, and in every case, whenever he had another chance to get that point across, he did. And, and this is confirmed by none, none other than Robert Caro. And it, he's, he stated that. So is Robert Dalek. All of the biographers, they're, they're on board with that point. And Robert Caro is, sorry to interrupt, but Robert Caro is kind of the definitive LBJ uh, biographer, correct? Yes. I mean, you he, mentioned him often through your book. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it's because he... Uh, has written some very powerful books. That first book was terrific. I, I, I had no, I, I was, it was, uh, it opened my eyes to what, what he was intrinsically, what the evil within, within him is pretty well written and, and defined, described by Robert Caro in that first book. The problem with Caro's books though, is that in each successive book, he, he, he backed off of that. He backed off in steps so that by the fourth book, 
he was basically saying that that Johnson was completely innocent. He was he was happened to be there and he, he acted boldly and 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 so forth. And but the stories by this point he he had really going on gone off um, course in terms of bringing forth truths and and uh, objective you know uh, descriptions of of who Johnson really was and and uh, i could describe them but we uh, i don't think time permits a detailed uh, probably get we probably get uh censored by some some of these uh, big tech sites too yeah but he you show in your book that johnson had a public image and a private character would you agree with that oh yes right well i mean a lot of people who worked for him knew all about his his uh, mental issues um his occasional psychotic breakdowns i mean that all all you all one needs to do to prove that is to read richard goodwin's 1988 book remembering america and he's he uh he spent a whole chapter a 45 page chapter discussing that point and and basically uh enumerating a number of occasions which not only he but but he's also talking about um bill moyers had witnessed and that and that they study they were very concerned about his his behaviors and so forth and uh, a, a lot of times he, he would wind up so depressed and in this manic cycle he had this manic depressive whatever it's called uh, they call it bipolar now but basically he I, i'm not sure if he ever i well I, I know he had never been treated for it by a psychiatrist okay hmm. a, until after he he uh, left the white house and then he had to get psychiatric help, but but I guess he wanted to resist that as long as he could. Uh, so anyway, you have that unfolding, uh, and not even coming out until 1988. I mean, this is uh, 25 years after he died. I mean, that's the problem. Right. He, he he existed all this time with all these things going on, according to his uh, partner in, in uh, defrauding taxpayers down in Texas, Billy Salestis. He was responsible for killing up to 17 people in Texas who got in his way or or presented, uh, you know, a, a potential problem for him in his quest for wealth and fame and and political power. And I think even one of those was his sister too, right? Yes, right. she 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 was always sort of a thorn in his backside um, the the whole time. I mean, she she was she had her own problems. She was an alcoholic and a very promiscuous uh gal and oh gosh i could i could talk about her for a long time and I, I i want to avoid that that's all those stories are in my first book gotcha so uh, LB, and and in it extends into the second book as well of course the lbj mastermind book and the lbj colossus book has all of that in and probably about a total of about 15 1600 pages so what we want to talk about a little bit more, though, is if 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 we can uh, segue into the yes. uh, the uh, Martin Luther King book, please do. Um, okay, that book is entitled "Who Really Killed Martin Luther King Jr.: The Case Against Lyndon B. Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover." And I'm, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs that that showed up in the Simon and Schuster uh, website on that book. Okay, great. Um, now, actually, the, the book is published by Skyhorse Publishing, and it's distributed by, by Simon & Schuster. 
Okay, this is what um, is contained there. In Who Really Killed Martin Luther King Jr., Philip Nelson explores the tactics used by the FBI to portray Ray as a Southern racist and stalker of King. He shows that early books on King's death were written for the very purpose of disinforming the American public at the behest of the FBI and CIA and are filled with proven lies and distortions. As Nelson methodically exposes the original constructed false narrative as the massive deceit that it was, he presents a revised and corrected account in its place based upon proven facts that exonerate James Earl Ray. Nelson's account is supplemented by several authors, including Harold Weisberg, Mark Lane, Dick Gregory, John Avery Emerson, Philip Melanson, and William F. Pepper. Nelson also posits numerous instances of how government investigators, the FBI originally, then the Department of Justice in 1976, then the House Select Committee on Assassinations Investigators in 1978, and the DOJ again in 2000, deliberately avoided pursuing any and all leads which pointed towards Ray's innocence. Okay, now I I want to also add there that the book that book was originally posted uh, published in um, in 2018. 18. Now in 2020, it was updated with a paperback edition that in, included a foreword from LBJ researcher Edgar F. Tatro, an educator, author, and participator in the House Select Committee on Assassinations who is among the first generation of JFK researchers. His unique insights into what he refers to as the Texas connection are an invaluable resource to anyone wishing to understand the full dimensions of the conspiracy behind the JFK assassination. So that was the most important major revision to, to the new new edition, that forward by, by Edgar Tatro. Um, now, he, he uh, goes into just a, a thumbnail review of some of the most brutal acts against men and women that one could imagine in that uh, new forward. The other significant change, though, was one I added in the, in the, at the other end of the book the, as an afterword. I wrote that to explain how James Earl Ray's second attorney, Percy Foreman, whose character will be uh, examined in complete detail in, in that section, that afterward. Uh, but he, he had gotten involved in his own criminal activity shortly a after he swindled Ray into a guilty plea. And, and that was about a, a, something that happened in 1970, where he was the in the center of a conspiracy involving other Texas attorneys and two of H.L. Hunt's sons, which resulted in a $100 million civil suit and subsequently converted to criminal charges and, and another, you know, by, by the government against all of them. Now that, that civil suit, uh, that whatever happened to that, I, I can't, I can't say, but it was the criminal charge that I, I wanted to look at. Percy managed to twist his way out of all of that with an apparent attempt in 1976. Okay, six years later. In other words, this case just dragged through the courts right. for for six years. So then in 1976, 
the new president, Jimmy Carter, and his uh, attorney general, Griffin Bell, ordered that all charges against Percy be dropped, though none of the others were included in that. The year before, they had all gotten off with a nominal $1,000 fine. In other words, the, basically, the, <laughs> the government sort of closed ranks with, with these lawyers led by Percy Foreman. But, but Percy Foreman, in a nutshell, I don't want to drag on this one, but uh, he, he used what he did for the government, for Lyndon Johnson, Jagger Hoover, in, in 1969, as a get-out-of-jail-free card in 1976. Gotcha. He, he, he basically very subtly blackmailed. It, and I can't prove this other than the fact that it happened, there, there's a, uh, a record that, that is in the added to the book of how that was just done, you know, on the spur. And suddenly, Griffin Bell wrote a, a note to the, the federal judge in Texas to tell him that, to go ahead and do this, to just dismiss the charges, let him go, all so that he would not have to pay the $1,000 fine, I guess. He's a multimillionaire, okay? Percy Foreman was, but he didn't want any kind of blemishes on his record when he knew he had that get out of jail card free. Why, why not play it? And that's what he did. Right. So you had a suspect defense attorney, but a very similar to kind of RFK where his, uh, Sirhan Sirhan's attorney was engaged in kind of scurrilous behavior. I don't know if you know about that, but uh, oh, yeah. oh, there's yes. some questions about that as well. So Exactly. They, they, they sort of use both of these attorneys, to, you know, uh, in, to um, pull off what they could otherwise not be able to do. And it's actually, sorry to interrupt, but it's also the same thing that happened with uh, the killer of Oswald, right? His attorney, like, I think they said the fix was into Melvin Belli or something like that. Like, they knew that it, it was just a fait accompli. It was, yeah. Right. Now, actually, they they had uh, basically won at his a, a hearing or trial, wherever it was, and, and basically they were going to give him a, a new trial because they, they kind of admitted that the other thing had been botched. But in the meantime, he suddenly dies of, uh, of cancer, cancer. Right. So, and that's uh, that was itself a very suspect event. Just like all these these events, there's just all kinds of subterfuge and strange things happening all around these uh, deaths. Apparently, and, and right. MLK is a perfect example. Yeah, the, I I want to just make a few points about my my book uh, on Martin Luther King's murder. Please do that that basically relate to the fact that the FBI, not just Hoover, but his top echelon of, of, of people, uh, basically planned the murder for at least for, I believe, five years. In fact, you could argue that if, if that one month after the assassination of JFK, all the attention then was turned to what are we going to do about Martin Luther King? And uh, almost precisely one month later, it was actually December the uh, 24th, I believe, uh, or 23rd, I think it was, whatever. It was a day or two before Christmas. And the FBI had a big meeting in 
FBI headquarters, including the top echelon people who were who were running this long-standing uh, thing against Martin Luther King, were joined by the uh, SAIC special agents in charge from from uh, Atlanta, Birmingham, Memphis, and St. Louis, and there may have been others there, but anyway, th they all met there, and the su subject at hand was the neutralization of Martin Luther King. Now, uh, on the uh, giving them a you know uh, some measure of of uh, benefit of the doubt, it could be argued well that that was just how how to take legal as actions to try to hush him up or to try to embarrass him or whatever. But that that as everyone knows by now, that was just the window dressing the the fact the fact is that that uh that there were efforts made to to uh to to form this conspiracy as early as 1964 and that is when uh some some of the um what two two of the major operatives here which uh, w w the one was um, Clyde Tolson, who was an assistant, the top level assistant to J. Edgar Hoover. In other words, there was he was the second man in the hierarchy of things, the FBI, and uh, his lover too, right? He was his Hoover. Oh yeah, lover. right. Yeah, it was. They, they were not just friends and buddies, but they were lovers and and whatever else they might have done. But 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 these guys were just riding high at this point. They they were taking these you know, expensive vacations in California and Florida for weeks at a time on the government dime, never paid for anything. It was always, oh, we're visiting a FBI office, but they weren't even in the FBI office. But right, and they expected they, to be comped on everything too, the, right? They were comped on everything. Right. And and what, what the government didn't comp in terms of expenses, the, their their buddies, uh, Clinton Murkison and Sid Richardson, you know, oil barons in, from Texas, were were taking care of the rest of their bills and even giving them money to bet at the Del Mar race track over there mm -hmm. in Southern California. Uh, so anyway, they, they were just doing all kinds of things way off the charts. So whatever is going on now in the FBI is nothing compared to what, what was going on back then. Right. Anyway, the, the, what I wanted to get to is that the, um, the, the points that I've brought up in, my, my book, which have never been addressed before, had to do with the fact that that they actually wanted to avoid having an FBI investigation of Martin Luther King's murder because it would point right back to them. If they really let their investigators loose, they would find out it would go right back to Washington and the FBI headquarters, top floor. So what they did was set up a series of novelists, a series of novelists that, that would that would come in and write a story. Now, the original story was supposed to be about a dead assassin because James Earl Ray was supposed to be murdered right there on the street in his Mustang right in front of Bessie's rooming house. They had a, a policeman, one of the dirty cops down in Memphis, ready to, to shoot him right there. And they had a backup guy who was, if in the event that the policeman didn't show up or didn't get it done there was a backup guy in place to do that as well it's all in the book um so 
here, here, here they were. They, they, they couldn't have their own FBI agents actually go out and do what needed to be done to, to explore this. So they, they essentially relied on these um, novelists, the first one of which was William Bradford Huey. Now, William Bradford Huey had been a lifetime, a 20-year friend of, of Hoover and Tulson. So he was in that, in their clutch. Right. And his last, sorry to interrupt. His last name is spelled H-U-I-E, sir. That's right, Huey. Uh, and he had written a number of novels. There were also some uh, supposedly true uh, crime books in there, but he, he had taken such liberties with all of them, you, you, could, you couldn't tell the difference. And when he wrote the, the, this book, uh, that was supposed to be, originally it was supposed to be, He Slew the Dreamer. Then when it was published, it was They Slew the Dreamer in order to get across that there was, there was a conspiracy, but it had nothing to do with the FBI, of course. It was all these racists down there in, in, in um, the South. Well, anyway, Huey wrote a book that portrayed James Earl Ray as a vicious Southern racist, a hater, stalker, murderer of Martin Luther King, when in fact none of the above was the case. He wasn't even Southern. He grew up in Quincy, Illinois, or thereabouts, in a couple of different towns, Alton, Quincy, so forth. And, and those towns are actually farther north than Springfield, Illinois, hmm. farther north than Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio. So how can that be considered Southern? So, so he strikes out there, but yet that's, he, he actually wrote the words Southern Illinois. Okay. He, as though he was basically very close to the South. And then from there on, he portrayed, um, him as, you know, as a lifelong criminal and he was up, but yet he was, the facts show that he was just a petty, petty criminal. He, he was a little thief and, a and he, uh, with, other associates would uh, would steal things like um, postal money orders, things like that, and and, and rob uh, supermarkets. That, that's all he did, and he never really did anything violent, other than the fact carry the gun when he was robbing a supermarket. And and so he he was repeatedly put into prison. And so and but before all that happened in in the in in the late forties and early 1950, 51, he was he was in the military, and he was sent to um, to Germany, and in Germany, as as I've mentioned in the book or detail in the book, he was subjected to MK Ultra treat, treatment and basically watched from then on. So he he was a known person to the FBI and the CIA through the CIA uh, all of that time. Wow, it's just incredible. I never heard that part of the story that he was an MK Ultra. Yeah, that uh, that was in an uh, a, that was actually something that another researcher and and uh, author named uh, Lyndon Barston wrote uh, in in a book that he he wrote with um, uh, Jerry Ray, uh, that is James's uh, brother. Right. And 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 he did uh, an incredible job of that in, in fleshing out. All, all of that angle, but that that's where it stopped in that book un, until I also borrowed it from him and put it in into mine and summarized it. So, but that's a very important piece because it, it explains so much about what happened when James Orr Ray did escape from that prison. Now that, by, by the way, we're just skipping around here, but 
Yes, so he was in prison for petty crimes. And he did escape. However, it was because of that Clyde Tolson, I, I mentioned, had, had gone out to Missouri and or to Memphis and, and given the um, this key plotter that, well, his name was um, Russell Adkins. And, and he was a figure in Memphis. I mean, he was known to a lot of people, all the politicians and so forth. And everybody knew him either directly or indirectly uh, as the as the fixer. He could make things happen. Okay, so what I started to say before, and I lost my place, was, was that in 1964, he and Russell Atkins and Clyde Tolson took a, a uh, three-month, three-and-a-half-month trip, ocean voyage trip on the USS United States, the fastest uh, such ship Ever. It still has a record for in 1956 for, for making a run to uh, to uh, Paris or to I mean to France uh, in record time. And anyway, they, they went on this cruise and then they spent time in France and England before they sailed it back. So altogether they were over there three and a half months. And the reason they did this is because they wanted to be completely focused on what they were doing with regard to this plan. No telephone interruptions, no aids, no nothing, except, you know, whoever's bringing around their their uh, lunches and dinners and drinks or whatever. So anyway, the point is they spent all that time fleshing out the original plan. So that's why I say that started just months after that meeting in, in, de, in December. 64, right? Of, six, of 63. 63, that's right. 63. This is just a month after the JFK is assassinated. So here, just four, four or five months later, here they are on this, on this ocean voyage, dedicated to the idea, and and it had to come out of that meeting, maybe as a secret, just between the the people who needed to know about this, but that that is what happened. Uh, so anyway, the um, what, what happened then later in 1966 was was that Clyde Tolson went to. Memphis, and he gave Russell Atkins this $25,000 for, for him to get it to the warden of the prison where James Earl Ray was, because they had selected James Earl Ray. He was the guy. Who, who knows how many other candidates they had, but they knew he, this guy's in prison, and we're going to get him to escape. And that was plan one. That was task one coming out of this <laughs> this meeting. Anyway, that that happened. He did escape, and in in, um, in 1967, it was uh, I think it was April, and and he he wound up uh, going to Chicago, uh, wor working there. And by the way, w working in places like a big restaurant up in Evanston, uh, where 75 employees, half of them were black people, and others were Mexicans. What he got along with everybody. The owners loved him when, when, when he decided he had to move on before, you know, before the law closed in on him, so to speak. They actually begged him to stay. They didn't want to lose him because he was such a good worker. He was always there on time, did a good job, and he was clean, well-behaved. Now, Huey comes along and wants to re-portray him as this 
violent Southern racist I just mentioned. And, and that was the objective of his book. Uh, however, other people came along and even people he referenced in his books, like the owners of that restaurant came forward and said, you know, they, they thought he was okay. Other people, his other landlords and, and, and Birmingham, Alabama and, and Illinois, other places said the same thing. Yet what Huey wrote about all of these people didn't conform with what he was saying. Was, right. He was trying to build a story that he was this, this dirty uh, and, and uh, I mean, unclean and, and uh, vile, evil person. And none of these people were coming forward with those kind of stories. So everything was kind of out of sync all along the way. Well, the other thing that Huey wrote was that he was a racist, a violent racist. And as evidence, he cited two women that James Earl Ray had come into contact with, one in Canada, one in Mexico thinking that if he didn't name them, then no one would ever find out who their names were. And so he could say anything he wanted to. So he made up bald faced lies for, uh, that each of them had told him stories that indicated he was a racist. I'm not going to go into the details. It's all in the book. But the point is, he lied about that, right. said that said that these women were, were portraying him as a vicious racist, when in fact, those women that did come forward 10 years later with the House Select Committee and and say that is untrue. He he was not a racist. He never said those things. As a matter of fact, the one in Canada, uh, he, here, here's a guy that just broke out of prison, went wound up going to Mon Montreal. By the way, 800 miles past Toronto. If he wanted to just go to Canada, why didn't he just stay in Toronto? But he dro drove this old broken down Plymouth right past Toronto to get to Montreal. That was because at McGill University in Montreal, that is a, a major CIA, uh, right. whatever. He was a uh, famous uh, guy, you and Cameron was there. So he was a yeah, very exactly. well known element. There's a book called fact, The Sleep Room about that, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and he was buddies with James Angleton, no less. Wow. And so this is all in the background and, and that, that aspect came from an, another author named uh, Philip Melanson. He, he did incredible work too. But the point I'm, I'm getting on that is that my, my book synthesizes what Philip Melanson said, what uh, this John Amos, uh, Emerson said, what William Pepper said. In fact, William Pepper's book, I, I, I believe he, he's just, he just did an incredible job. He actually wrote three books. But most of what, what I'm referencing came out of that last one, The Plot to Kill King. And, and it was, that was not published until 2016. And, and as it worked out, that is precisely when I decided to start investigating this one. And so his book was just out. And, and I, I, I basically incorporated it almost by proxy as the basis, as the, as, as the single biggest basis of my own book. Yet, as I mentioned, my, my, my book summarizes numerous other books, the good and the bad. And right. The and bad, you talk about some of the bad guys, I mean, who you consider right. Posner's and names, some of these other names that are oh, yeah. very uh, suspicious. And people have taken them apart, like uh, what's the professor from Berkeley? It's uh, Peter Dale Scott. Peter Dale Scott. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. William Bradford Huey he wrote his book in 1970. That was a culmination of 
after having written th three uh, articles for Look Magazine. And each of those articles started betraying the trust that, that Ray had extended to him. Uh, and in, in, the, in the meantime, he, he, had, he had entered this contract with, with Huey basically to be paid by, uh, that is, the, whatever monies that would be collected there, some of that would be given to his attorney. And his original attorney was uh, Arthur Haynes out of um, Birmingham, Alabama. And unfortunately he, uh, for Huey, well, let's put it this way. He, his first article had come out in uh, November, early November, I think it was the 12th of 1969. That was exactly at the time when, uh, the, when um, James Earl Ray had had determined that he had he had betrayed that Huey had betrayed him that he was he was being set up, that's and right. that's when he decided to fire him after that first article appeared in Look Magazine. Now it just happens that b because the cell he was put in it was con converted so that so that there was no sunlight that would ever even come in at a little crack under a crack. In other words, they sealed all the windows in, in this uh, cell block and, and they, they put all kinds of microphones, uh, video cameras, CCTV type things. So he was monitored constantly 24, seven, 365, always monitored. And so they knew when he was speaking to his brothers, or or his previous lawyer or whomever they, they were overhearing everything and and recording it and sending all these reports back to washington right. through through the fbi to hoover the, the, so they knew exactly what was going on there and they they knew that he was telling his brothers that he had to fire uh haynes to get rid of huey so he had to fire all of them and just get rid of them that's what he did so they're all being done. And then at the same time, leading up to the assassination, the FBI is bugging MLK and putting them under psychological pressure. So, yes. I mean, there's that that very important part that they're constantly spying on these people, right? The FBI. Right, yeah. But the other thing that happened there is that since they knew that he was ready to fire, fire the uh, Huey, uh, that is Hayes and Huey, um, that now is the perfect time for Percy Foreman, big Texas famous attorney to uh, to to go into that jail and ask to see him and actually be shown right up to his they took him right up there because they were ordered to through, through you know Hoover FBI and so on in order to do that because that's not that is not something that you can do an attorney can't just show up and and for a person who's He's already represented. He hasn't been. He hasn't fired right. this person yet. They can't be doing that. But that it was done, and so he got up there and he convinced uh, James Earl Ray that yes, you should go ahead and move against uh, Haynes, get rid of him. I'm I'm the Texas Tiger. He, he called himself, and I I have I've had a thousand cases when only one guy ever ever got uh, the electric chair, or capital punishment, whatever. <clears throat> And out of a thousand. So, yeah, he was famous for doing that. He was also famous among attorneys, especially in Texas, who, who knew him, that to do anything possible. He, it, it didn't matter if he had to suborn a jury or uh, suborn a witness. 
in, in order in order to get things done. That's what he did. And so I've I've written all about that in, in one of my blogs. Um, from, I think 2018. Right. So there was you have these attorneys, sketchy attorneys, and you mentioned Pepper. Can you explain to the audience the importance of uh, I think it's William Pepper? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I should have uh, expounded on that earlier. But William Pepper Pepper had had gotten to be a friend of Martin Luther King back in uh, the uh, mid or early '60s. When when he went to that is when Pepper went to Vietnam to to um, you know re review what was going on there as a journalist. He came back loaded with photographs of children, the Vietnam children, who were being slaughtered and abused and 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 uh, maimed, and, and made a, a uh, pu published an article in Ramparts magazine, and I, I I can't remember exactly when that was. It was '65, I believe, 1965, and that and Martin Martin Luther King saw that article in Ramparts. And that's what basically started turning him against the Vietnam War, that what, what was going on over there and the effects not only on, uh, it, you know, uh, uh, draftees, especially black guys being drafted and sent over there to fight in this ridiculous war that was supposed to be a civil war. And uh, anyway, it, that, that's how they got, got to know each other and become friends. So, so he... Uh, for 10 years after the murder, he, he basically accepted the government thing that, yeah, they got this guy and so forth. Then he has, he had his hands full with other stuff. So it wasn't until, um, about 10 years later that, that he really took an interest in it and started pursuing it and then started investigating and uh, talking to a ton of people down there. And, and, and he wrote, as I said before, three books, the first one, uh, Oh, I can't remember the dates of them, but it was like in the 19, early 1980s and then 1990, mid-90s, and then that book in 2016. Three books, uh, a decade apart. But he became, Pepper became friends with the family and actually was part yes. of that trial by Judge Joe Brown, right? Right. At, so at, that, point, at that point, we're talking about, well, it, that all started in the late later 90s. And, uh, and so in 1997, he was... He was already at work trying to get this done, uh, you know, while um, James Roway was still alive. Well, he he didn't quite make it because uh, Ray died in 1998, and the trial was re basically in 1999, and so Ray had already died at that point. Uh, but in the meantime, it was instructive, and people should consider the fact that the entire King family pretty much knew that the FBI was was behind the, the murder of Martin Luther King. And that uh, that became almost official in 1997 when, when Dexter King was quoted in the um, New York Times that basically the FBI was behind it and also Lyndon Johnson. So everything in my book is conforms with what they were talking about at the time. Now, they they haven't talked about it, however, in depth since um, the family matriarch uh, passed away. Coretta Scott King, I think, died in the early uh, 2010s or 2011, something like that. And 
sorry if I, since I can't remember exactly. That's okay. But but at that point, evidently, someone got to them and said, you know, you got to, you know, loosen up and uh, not talk about everything so much anymore. And probably there were threats, financial kind of thing, maybe. I don't know what it happened. They, they haven't talked about it. And they haven't. Interesting. It basically effectively uh, shut them up. But I, did, I don't have any reason to think that it really changed their minds, you know. <laughs> they've just kind of not become not as public as right. they can. Yeah. Interesting. Now, I, I wanted to also get across the point that this William Bradford Huey, what he did in, in 1970, 69 and 70, is one thing. And then, and, and even in the files of the FBI that are, are have been released, it really, there's there's evidence that that they, in, in the form of uh, Cartha Deloach, set up Gerald Frank to write another book in 1972, and then George McMillan in 1976. And so all three of those, I believe, were were uh, choreographed by the FBI. Uh, I'm talking about William Sullivan and Cartha Deloach, Clyde Tolson, and of course, uh, Hoover. Um, so, so after that, now other people have come along and adopted the same, same kind of um, storylines that that uh, Huey had established. They've expanded on Huey, what Huey said, with more lies and deceits, and 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 I've quantified all that within the book. And it had even extended into uh, the 80s and 90s, and the and and in 2010, uh, the, the 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 biggest authors, the, the most well-known authors that that uh, were in that lineup, were Gerald Posner, and then Hampton Sides in 2010. They and they took those same lies that 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 Huey first published, and they repeated them, and repeated them, and repeated. Them through these other authors and and then and 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 they now not only did they repeat them they upped the ante so so by the time the original story was basically say saying that uh and that is in uh huey frank and mcmillan were were saying that the, the the way that james earl ray figured out where to go on the morning of april the 4th was by looking at the newspaper that morning which indicated that that he was staying in the Lorraine Motel. Unfortunately, that that was never in that newspaper. All it said was that he had had lunch in that hotel in their cafeteria or the restaurant, whatever, the day before that. It didn't say that he was staying there though. So so they had no reason to think that he was. And in fact, he usually stayed at other hotels. He, he had never really stayed at the Lorraine, even though that got to be. You know, stayed like, over and yeah. over, and it yeah. was never the truth. And Pepper established that, and Pepper knew his friend Martin Luther King and never stayed there. And they uh, he actually stayed usually in a, in a place called the Rivermont uh, Holiday Inn. So, so um, anyway, that that's what was in the earlier books. However, pa Posner comes out, and then he says that not not only that, but there was a picture on the front page of that newspaper. That, that showed the the hotel 
and what the marking where the room was. And then along comes Posner, okay, 15 years later in 2010. Posner extends it by saying, actually, he was shown in a picture that, that was taken right in front of the door, and you could see the number 306 right on the door. That's what is in his book. Check it out. Wow. But it's not true. None of that That's was true. true. And, and in fact, that original paper I have in the book, and there's not even a picture of anybody. There is an article on the front, front of that page. But that was just one of many, many um, lies that, that started back with William Bradford Huey. And right. it got expanded and expanded and extended. And so now it's, it's sort of like in the you know part of the, the meme that happened, but it never happened. Right. I mean, that's really kind of the confusing element of this whole case is what people never could get past these kind of, uh, door, you know, these blizzard of lies by these books and authors out there confusing people. And it seems like it's pretty deliberate. I mean, there's a ton of information in this book, Philip. It's really detailed. It's long. You have a lot of appendixes, appendices, citations. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? We're almost about an hour. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we wrap well, up the discussion? Yeah, the, well, the point that you were just referring to, uh, I, I also have something in the in the last uh, part of the book about how the effort is got is still very coordinated and controlled by somewhere in the bowels of the Washington bureaucracy. And it's evidenced by the fact that when, when the Lorraine Motel was renovated, that it was, it was uh, completely uh, deconstructed, that, that is the interior, all the, the wood framing, un, you know, under those, or behind those brick walls. The only thing that remained, this was going on in 2012, 2013, that recently. Oh. So, but when they rebuilt it, supposedly, they with uh, well, they had to rebuild it to, to accommodate traffic, a lot of people walking through because of the national, it turned into the National Civil Rights Museum. Right. Uh, so they put concrete floors on a steel superstructure, and, and that's what supported that second floor. Uh, but they they stated that we're going to reconstruct two rooms there. The rest of it is wide open to, to allow you know the uh, exhibits and so forth and so forth. But but they reconstructed the bathroom, and they reconstructed the uh, bedroom that James Earl Ray had had uh, stayed in, or had rented. He never did wind up staying in it. <clears throat> but anyway, when 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 they did that, they they changed that bedroom around. Okay, and actually, they changed the whole floor around. It, they raised the floor at least a foot. Okay, hmm. and and there was a purpose in this, though. You you have to see the pictures in the book to see what happened there, because in addition to raising the floor a foot, they moved the bathtub that was in that corner where the window was backwards. So there's there's, there's ten or twelve inches in, in between the end of it and the the wall where the window is. So that so, so people in there now can go in and look and say, yeah, that makes sense. You can, right. you can stand right there in, in front of the window with your, your gun and shoot. <laughs> right, because right, at the time of the assassination, the, the assassin supposedly would have been sitting in the bathtub, right? Yeah, well, shot, I right? mean, yeah, Harold Weisberg showed, showed something that had been published in the uh, Paris Match ma magazine about that. And and it, it showed a guy in contortions trying to stand at the – the end of that bathroom on the slanted end okay with one foot on the 
ledge and the, the other bottom or whatever. And he was going sideways. He had to bend over all, all the way to his right in order to aim a gun down there. And it was an impossible thing. Uh, Harold Weisberg was the one who tore that thing apart. Well, now, and, and, and apparently for many years, that there was this problem. They must have had a lot of people saying, well, how, how could someone stand there on that slanted end and have a shot, especially if he had to stay there very long to wait, wait for Martin Luther King to show up on that balcony. Well, he didn't. I mean, that the the rifleman was not even not even there. He he was down on the ground, you know, and and but but they had to, for some reason that they they framed it that way, so that it would it would reflect on the fact that he had gone in there and gotten that room and supposedly shot it shot James O'Reilly was there, there right yeah there's a lot of details I highly recommend the book uh it's titled again who really killed Martin Luther King Jr where's the best place to get this book well it's in uh, most bookstores and of course Amazon books a million and um Barnes and Noble um I uh you know I I track it basically but I don't have much to do with it uh, except I I do make available signed copies if people contact me through my website um, which is lbj the master of deceit and if people com. want to reach out to you they can also do it through that website as well correct yes there's a contact page there so i will put that in the show notes and the website is www.lbjthemasterofdeceit all one word.com so people right. can check that out there and again the title of the book is who really killed martin luther king jr the case against Lyndon B. Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover by Philip F. Nelson. So, Philip, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Right, take care. All right, stay there. Stay there.